On the morning of May 11th, Israeli forces raided the city of Jenin in the occupied West Bank. Fighting between Israeli forces and Palestinian militants defending the refugee camp in the city was fierce in areas. Away from the fighting, a group of Palestinians gather, watching the movement of Israeli soldiers. One of those watching films events on his phone. There's the Israeli army, the man says. There's the sniper. He clocked me, he tells a friend, as they duck down and move out of the line of sight. The occupation forces are storming Janine camp, he proclaims. In the distance, the sound of gunfire can be heard. Zooming in with his camera, he says, there's the Israeli army. As the man moves around, still filming, a small band of journalists can be seen walking down the road. They're wearing blue helmets, emblazoned across their flak jackets in clear white letters. The word press is visible. (laughs) A volley of gunfire is heard. As the shots crack, the unarmed Palestinian men duck and run for cover. Ambulance, another man calls, as the cracks of yet more gunfire fill the air. Someone is hit. Shireen, Shireen, ambulance. Doing the job she had diligently undertaken for over two decades. A highly respected and renowned Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh, was shot and killed on May 11th. My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. In the immediate aftermath of Shireen's killing, a wave of intense grief and anger swept over Palestine. Her senseless killing tore at the hearts of a Palestinian community who had watched her reports on Al Jazeera Arabic since 1997. So Shireen was a well-loved reporter. She was one of the region's most experienced, always a familiar face on TV and at the, you know, the news events that are constantly breaking in in Palestine. This is Dalia Hatuka, a Palestinian journalist and close friend of Shireen Abu Akleh. And a generation of Palestinians grew up, you know, seeing her on their TV screens. She she was one of the best known women reporters covering the conflict. So she was a, a fixture on screens. She was intrepid. She was sympathetic. She was intelligent, trustworthy. And her calm, commanding presence filled living rooms and, and refugee camps and alleyways. And she knew the West Bank like the back of her hand. Just a few years after Shireen started working for Al Jazeera, the Second Intifada began. Week after week, month after month and year after year, Shireen was on the ground reporting on the latest developments. Dahlia, too, was one of those watching and was instantly taken with her talent for reporting. This journalist is like really cool, calm and collected in, in the field. And, you know, I admired her. 
And then, but when I met her in person, she was totally different from what she was like in front of the camera. She was like super funny. I really liked to have a laugh. Uh, she loved to party. She loved to shop. She had this infectious laugh, basically. She liked to dance. So it was just really fun getting to know the woman behind the camera, so to speak. For those who only knew Shireen as a journalist, they recognised the calm clarity of her reporting and the voice she gave to the struggle of the Palestinian people in the face of intense oppression, particularly during the Second Intifada. I met Shireen, I guess we were both starting off more or less our careers. It was at the beginning of the Second Intifada in the year 2000, I think. This is Noor O'Day. Noor is also a Palestinian journalist and was another of Shireen's close friends. And it was a time when I think all of us as journalists were taken, taken by the story, by the fact that we we were in a position to tell our people's story, if you will, at a time when so much was happening, when there was so much brutality, and when uh, the voice of uh, Palestinians was... Uh, more systematically muted, if you will. There were fewer options for the Palestinian narrative. There was much less understanding for the Palestinian perspective. The Second Intifada was an intense period for the Palestinians as their struggle was met with fierce violence. But Noor remembers a journalist who never faltered when it came to telling the story. Shireen was very... She was a very calm person, um, very uh, graceful, if you will. So in that way, she stood out, especially, you know, in a place where there was so much tension. To find someone who's able to always stay calm as a river, if you will, uh, was remarkable. Uh, We all have our different ways of processing everything that we, uh, you know, go through as reporters in the field. And it's a very, very high stress profession. But Shireen was always graceful, dignified, calm, ready to engage with anybody, uh, to follow up on her stories and, and with people that she got in contact with. I think that's really what stood out about her, her grace. And Dahlia? I think she'll be known as, you know, a, a trailblazer. She was a symbol. But I think that the title that she loved the most was journalist like that that's who she was and her journalism was fueled by her palestinianism she was palestinian to the core shireen's killing was an assault on palestine the palestinian collective mind and a free press in palestine thousands flocked to shireen's funeral to pay their final respects and to remember the enduring impact she had I came here today to pay tribute to an honourable woman, a woman who represented us over 25 years. She was our voice to the world, and this voice has been taken from us. We came today to give her respect, to give her a send-off that she deserved here in Jerusalem, the city that she loved and served so well. But even in death, Israel was not content with allowing Shireen to be laid to rest in peace. As mourners carried her coffin, Israeli forces attacked the funeral. Decked out in riot gear, they beat those at the funeral with batons, including the pallbearers who carried the slain journalist, resulting in her almost being dropped to the floor. 
They continued their brutal assault, firing stun grenades. The violence that unfolded at Shireen's funeral, caught live on television, was as shocking as it was savage. It added fuel to the burning anger of the Palestinians, whose calls for justice grew. When the news of Shireen's death first broke, the Israeli machines sprung into action. They started by blaming Palestinian militants, providing no evidence. The claim was quickly debunked. They then conceded that the fatal bullet may have been fired from an Israeli gun. Following a visit to Janine, the Israeli Army Chief of Staff, General Avi Kohavi, announced that an investigation would be launched. An offer for a joint investigation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority was roundly rejected by the latter, who had no faith in Israel's motives or intentions. An investigation by the Palestinian Authority and an examination of the bullet that struck Shireen concluded that Israel was responsible for her death. The Attorney General of the Palestinian Authority, Akram Al-Khateb, spoke to reporters. Investigations, material evidence, oral evidence and technical reports have all proven to us conclusively that the targeting of the martyr Abu Akli and the group of journalists who were accompanying her by the occupying army was done directly and deliberately. That was confirmed by the type of weapon used, a Riga Mini-14 rifle, the type of armour-penetrating ammunition, and the shooting distance, which ranged between 170 to 100 metres from the whereabouts of the martyr Abu Akleh, who was in the open area where there are no obstructions to vision. By May 19th, the Israeli army announced that they would not investigate the killing of the journalist claiming that there is no suspicion of a criminal act. A lot of the times Israelis say they will investigate, but as Human Rights Watch has called it, these are whitewashed mechanisms. So there really is no accountability for those sorts of of abuses when it comes to actions by the Israeli authorities. It saddens me and it angers me that there's no accountability for the deaths, for the senseless deaths of media workers and the relative impunity under which Israelis operate. Israel does have a history of impunity for a multitude of crimes, including the killing of journalists. Shireen Abu Akleh was the latest in a depressingly long line of Palestinian journalists killed by Israel. Yasser Mutaja, Yusuf Abu Hussein, Ahmed Abu Hussein, Fadl Shanna, Shadi Hamdi Ayed, Mohammed Musa Abu Aisha, Mahmoud Ali Ahmed Al Kumi. The list goes on and on and on. The Palestinian Journalist Syndicate reported that 46 journalists have been killed by Israel since the year 2000. But despite the perceived immunity, there are a number of groups who are working tirelessly to secure justice and accountability. Groups like the Committee for the Protection of Journalists, or CPJ. CPJ's position has been that we have been calling for an independent, transparent, and efficient investigation, something that the process is clear, the process is credible, and there can be some sort of defined timeline toward resolution and towards investigation. 
This is Justin Shalad, Senior MENA Researcher for the Committee to Protect Journalists. I think that what we have seen throughout the world is that when we've seen cases of journalists getting killed in the line of duty for their work, we have always called for investigations with the idea that in states that have credible democratic processes, rule of law, that they should be able to investigate this in a timely manner. In reality, that's not often the case. In some cases around the world, there are situations where there's a complete breakdown of rule and law and order, and so there is no functioning independent justice system at the national level to investigate an abuse. In other cases, and this is unfortunately the one that we see throughout the Middle East and North Africa, the authorities that would be charged with investigating a journalist's death or murder are very often authorities who may themselves be complicit in their killing. This state complicity was what was seen with Shireen. It was seen with other Palestinian journalists killed by Israel. It was seen with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, where Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was implicated. It was seen in Iran with the killing of Rahul Azam. Israel have already announced that no investigation into Shireen will be pursued. Such a move makes the window for justice and accountability incredibly narrow. But it hasn't closed completely. There have been several groups that have called for an international criminal court investigation. That would, in theory, be an option. The problem is that there are several countries, most notably the United States, that have not signed on to the international criminal court. And so having an international investigation at that level could be difficult if you have major powers that don't have any buy-in. So then the question is, what happens next? What we've seen in the past is that we have called for investigations at the international level and for that to be ordered by the Secretary General of the United Nations, who could then call some sort of tribunal or other investigative body. Currently, the International Criminal Court is being favoured by those seeking justice with the Palestinian Authority and Shireen's former employer, Al Jazeera, both submitting complaints to the ICC. There is always hope, but prospects for justice are depressingly slim. And judging by the tens of other journalists killed by Israel, whose bodies lie in the road to Shireen's, Israel appears immune. We haven't really seen any evidence that anyone has ever been prosecuted for murder, for killing a journalist. We haven't seen any evidence that anyone within the leadership or command structure of the Israeli military, Israeli government, has been held to account for having command responsibility or having ordered a journalist killing or being responsible for a journalist killing. And overall, what we're seeing on an international level in terms of immunity is that there's no real will or ability right now to have any sort of prosecution or even kind of investigation with teeth at the international level, which does raise the specter that this is going to be a recurring thing, that the Israeli forces will continue to target Palestinian journalists and that there will be effectively immunity for that. When the world learned of Shireen's death, governments around the world were quick to condemn the killing. Like this from Ned Price, spokesman for the US Department of State. Uh, let me start by saying that we are absolutely heartbroken uh, to learn of the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla and injuries to her producer Ali Samoudi uh, today in the West Bank. 
We send our deepest condolences to Shireen's family, her friends and loved ones, and strongly condemn her killing. Other similar messages of condolences were made, but in the face of such tragedy, which has been lived by the Palestinian people multiple times, and the close and continued support that is provided to Israel's military, these words ring hollow. The US currently provides Israel with $3.8 billion in financial support each year as part of a 10-year plan that is set to run until 2028. Just $8.5 million of that went to support the economy, with the rest funding Israel's military. This US mentality of having your cake and eating it, condemning and supporting, is particularly insulting when it comes to cases like the killing of Shireen, and when you remember that as well as being a Palestinian, she was also a US citizen, a fact of particular pertinence for Dahlia, who also holds US citizenship. I believe that the US administration has failed us as American citizens, like Shirin was an American, I'm American, that its weapons are basically being used to kill us, that we are treated as children of a lesser god. And I think some of these reactions have been spineless because how many Americans have to die before Washington holds Israel to account? We still haven't heard anything about the death of Omar Assad, the 78-year-old Palestinian-American who died in January uh, when he was arrested by soldiers in the West Bank. He died when soldiers stopped his car. They blindfolded him. They bound him. They led him away into a building under construction. And then when people found him in the morning, he had the plastic zip tie still around one of his wrists. So they they left him for dead. And his family never got justice for his death. The U.S. administration didn't press the Israelis further on the matter. And how can I expect them to do anything different for Shireen? I think the only way we can expect anything is if we, as journalists and colleagues and Palestinians in general, like civil society, you know, keep keep her case alive. We we need to do that. We we should not let this pass. Journalism is not a crime. It's a common refrain when such tragedy occurs, and it is as true today as it has ever been. Journalism is not a crime. Similarly, journalists are not legitimate military targets. These are basic principles that are supposed to come from the top and work down through every facet of government and military. But unfortunately, researchers like Justin at the CPJ have seen more than enough evidence to suggest that this message is not getting through. I think that there's this increasing assumption of total war, including information war, which results in the perception that any journalist who is not officially on your side and putting forth the official narrative is a legitimate target. I think that in terms of what can be done to protect journalists in war, what can be done to stop the targeting of journalists (laughs) under international law, the tools are already there. International law customs, norms are all very clear that it's crime to target journalists that is not something to ever be done. What needs to happen is that the member states, governments, authorities, all of those who profess to live by these laws and emphasize their importance need to actually put their money where their mouths are, so to speak, and to emphasize down their chain of command that journalists are not target. 
and they need to respect all journalists who are doing their job, regardless of whatever their affiliation is, whatever conflict they're covering, how they're covering that conflict. The veneration of free speech and freedom of the press by Western states, which walks hand in hand with the impunity for killing journalists they provide to states like Israel, is seen as nothing more than unbridled hypocrisy by journalists like Noor O'Day. Either the, the international community uh, believes in the laws that offer protection to journalists or they don't. Um, and if they do, as they claim they do, then they must apply the same standards. Countries that uh, kill journalists have to pay a certain price. Countries that squeeze freedom of speech, that encroach upon freedom of speech, have to be treated as pariah states, as rogue states. That's what rogue states do. You cannot treat Israel as a normal democracy when it is committing one violation after another on every level, including freedom of speech, including uh, respecting journalists and, and their right to work freely and safely. Just be consistent. Either come right out and say the quiet part out loud that Israel is an exception and that they, you know, everybody's going to make that exception, hypocritical as it may be, or you know, if you want to keep talking about human rights and, and, and journalism and the importance of freedom of expression, make sure that you, you, you practice what you preach, basically. And such hypocrisy does not exist in the bubble. Other countries around the world are watching and taking notes. Why should any country bother or care when criticized by the Americans or the Europeans about cracking down on journalists or attacking journalists or imprisoning them or even killing them, if they can point to this kind of double standard and hypocrisy. This double standard will empower countries that as a matter of policy attack journalists to continue doing the same and to, to basically tell you know all these countries that carry the mantle of freedom of expression, well, look, you're, you know, you're a hypocrite. The audacious killing of Shireen Abu Akleh is an outrageous assault. But given the dispensations and double standards provided Israel, combined with their disturbing history, it's also unsurprising. Justin Shalad again. What made this so hard to stomach was that beyond the shock, the horror, and just the pall that settles over when you see this happening again, is that at the end of the day, it's not surprising. It's horrifying just the same, but then it's also when you've created this environment of impunity with Israel, with other countries in the Middle East, with Saudi Arabia, and just at the international generally, where authorities target journalists and get away with it, then it's not surprising to happen again and again. It's gotten to the point now where you've repeatedly over and over again seen these high profile instances of journalists clearly blatantly being targeted of many, many more not high profile instances of the same thing that don't even make the international headlines. And when there's no accountability again and again, then what we say is this is not going to stop. If there's not decisive action against this, if there's not political will to fight this, it's going to keep happening again and again. And then it does happen again and again. And so it's never not shocking. It's never not horrifying, but it does stop being surprising. And I think that that's really truly tragic part of it. Shireen Abu Akleh should be alive today. Shireen should have filed her story from the Janine refugee camp, ending with her famed sign-off. Her death was a crime, for which 
it is unlikely anyone will be held accountable. She will be sorely missed by her friends, her colleagues and the people of Palestine. But with her passing, she leaves behind an almost unrivaled body of work and a passion for both journalism and Palestine. Nur Ode. I think, first of all, Shireen is someone that, you know, we will be talking about for for a long time to come. I'm not sure she intended for this because she was not, you know, someone who, who sought fame and attention. But I think part of her legacy, at least, uh, in addition to being an icon and to being a standard setter and a trailblazer, if you will, in the profession, is that she allowed Palestinians at a very low point to feel unified and empowered, even if that empowerment came through grief. And that will forever be part of her legacy. Uh, The way Palestinians grieved her, the way they celebrated her, the way they protected her funeral procession, the statement they made about their national identity in Jerusalem, this, this will all be part of Shireen's legacy. And final words to Dalia Hatuka. I want to remember her as as someone so, so fun. I just want to remember her like being like, take me out shopping. And then when we do, she would like love to look at handbags. And um, she would, uh, she was so indecisive. <laughs> You know, when she was buying uh, gifts for her friends, she'd be like, Daddy, should I get this or that? And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, just pick anything. And uh, so I, le- I-, I want to remember some of the good stuff, too. You know, I know that a lot of people will remember her as a journalist. But to me, she was more than that. She was my friend. And um, I'm, I'm going to miss her. Next, producer Lise Mouvet presents the first of two reports from the northern town of Calais, France. There is no official data on death at the border in Calais and in this area. This is also one one reason I decided to, to do this work, you know. French authorities um, were not able to, to give a number of victims at the border. When you don't have any data, any number, you cannot say, oh, people, uh, people are killed at the border. Maël Galisson is an activist and researcher. From 2012 to 2015, he coordinated a network of charities that support migrants and asylum seekers in Calais, at the border between France and the United Kingdom. Around 2,000 migrants live on the northern French coast around Calais, down from a peak of 10,000 people in 2016. Most of them fled wars and persecution in Sudan, Eritrea and the Middle East, often taking great risks to reach Europe. But their dangerous journey doesn't end there. The road to the UK is deadly. Hello everyone, you are listening to the Calais Border Broadcast. We are on November 25, 2021, live from Calais. Death at the border. Yesterday, 27 people died at sea while trying to cross to England. It's terrible and words are not enough in front of such a tragedy. 
Six months ago, on November 24, 2021, 18 men, seven women and two children drowned off the coast of Calais. Sixteen of them were Iraqi Kurds fleeing political persecution at home. Others hailed from Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Somalia, Iran and Egypt. This was unfortunately not the first nor the last tragedy recorded at the French-English border. You know, when you read newspaper at this time, when I started to, to, to do this list, if you read the, the, the title of the article, you can, you can read uh, a, a migrant is dead on the highway, a migrant is dead on the sea. But there is no, uh, no story about, about the victims, no name, uh, no family name, no nationality. In 2015, Galisson began documenting migrant deaths at the French-English border, based on newspaper archives, NGO reports, and information shared by activists and charities. Activists and journalists had been recording deaths in the Mediterranean for several years, through initiatives like Fortress Europe, Watch the Med, and since 2014, by the UN's International Organization for Migration. But this work focused on the external borders of Europe, not on Calais. I wanted to, um, to give to all these victims uh, their story, their, their story, their, their name, their family names. Galisson compiled a list of fatalities going back to 1999 and an interactive map which is available online. His research shows that despite efforts to prevent crossings, the border is increasingly deadly. You cannot, you cannot close the border. When authorities try to cross uh, the crossing way, another crossing way uh, appears, and uh, most of the time it's more dangerous for, for migrant people. Before it was uh, easier to cross the border hidden in, in a truck. Now it's complicated, so people decided to, to cross uh, by boat. As of May 2022, more than 350 migrants and asylum seekers have been killed at the French-English border and charities in Calais continue to cope with mounting fatalities. We can only imagine how, how hard it, it might be to, as a family in their own country not to know where is the son of the family or the brother or the, or the husband. So the first thing is that when someone dies or someone disappears, to be able to let the family know so they can grieve so they can, and they can decide how they want, what they want for their relative. Juliette de la Place heads the Secours Catholique, one of the largest charities working in Calais. She's also part of the Groupe Décès, a network of volunteers established to support the relatives of those killed at the border. Yeah, it's all volunteers, and actually we are not a lot, we are less than 10 persons, and I mean, I mean we are not enough because um, there are too, too, too many deaths at the borders. Like, really, for instance, in September, there have been deaths at the border every month except in April. Each time there is a death, actually, there are many things to do. There is the identification aspect, but then once the person is identified, um, the relative should decide whether to bring the uh, body back to their home country and to their family there, or to bury him in Calais. Many families cannot afford to repatriate the body. So in the Muslim corner of the cemetery in Calais, most of the recent graves belong to migrants. They are marked by a simple heap of soil and wooden nameplates. Many are nameless. 
This simplicity contrasts with the rest of the cemetery, which is filled with large and flowered tombstones. The cost of the funeral is generally borne by migrants themselves, their relatives, and local charities. The state will take in charge the burial of people um, without resources, but it will do it this, I mean, the cheapest way possible, so without any Christian or yeah, Muslim uh, specific care. But this, the thing is that the majority of the people who die at the border are either Sudanese, so Muslim, or Eritrean, so Orthodox. And actually, they are, it's very important for their families, who are already losing someone uh, miles away from them. It's very important for them that the burial respects the Muslim tradition or the Catholic I mean, procedures. And these specific costs are not take, taken um, by the state. Activists in Calais and beyond are building on Galisson's research to give visibility to the tragedy unfolding at the border. Véronique has been working with migrants in Calais for decades. One of her roles is to run a weekly wood carving workshop. Anyone is welcome to engrave the name and story of a person who died at the border. We have small wooden planks. We have printed on a piece of paper the name of each person and the date of her death when we have it. Using translucent paper, we copy these letters on each wooden plank. We have a small machine that digs into the wood, so we spend time carving out each letter. The wooden planks are very thin and light, around 30 centimeters long and 10 centimeters wide. Once carved, the letters are filled with black paint to make them easier to read, and each plaque is varnished several times. More than 300 plaques have already been carved and assembled on wood panels. Activists hope to display them at different events and in the city to commemorate missing migrants and what is known of their story. The purpose of these plaques is really not to forget these people, because there is a tendency not only to forget them, but to make them invisible. We can see here how people on the move are pushed to the outskirts of Calais, are chased from one place to another, it's like they must not be seen, they must not exist. Maëlle, Juliette and Véronique share one wish, to close their Excel files, their WhatsApp groups, to put down their brushes, paper, their carving tools, and to put, at last, a final stop to their long list. As long as there will be death at the border, for us it's very important to, to continue working and by trying to bring visibility to this death at the border, it's also a way to try to condemn the policy that is led here and try to change it. You can hear part two of Lise Mouvet's report from Calais on the next episode. The New Arab Voice was produced and written by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Rosie McCabe, Paul McLaughlin and Kareem Trabulsi. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter accounts, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. 
Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.